Amen. In Christ alone. I think that's a hymn that we will be hearing for many, many decades to come. It's interesting. As I got back into worship on the team here and started thinking about the songs that we hear on the radio, a lot of uh, pop culture songs. There's songs that were popular when I first came to Christ that you never hear anymore. And yet there are those songs, like many of the hymns, all the hymns we sang this morning have been around for many of them for centuries. And yet they, they just are still anointed. They are God's gift to the church. I think in Christ alone is one of those hymns that we will be singing for a long time. Well, good morning. It's great to see you here this morning. It is obviously a celebration day for believers. This is Resurrection Day. And I always I, I just love the. It's not my favorite holiday. Don't throw things at me. But I'll, Christmas is my favorite holy day. But I love Easter for different reasons. Um, and Easter I like because it's. You do a lot of preparation work through Lent, uh, through fasting, through prayer. You do the mental contemplation of thinking about the cross and the death of Christ and it grieves our hearts. But then you get to uh, culminate in the celebration of what came out of the tomb. And when the tears are wiped away and the sorrow is gone and just all the excitement that they experienced back in the days that the resurrection happened, we still... We're on the coattails of that because it's real for us. So there's still this excitement we share with them. So I definitely appreciate this time. And I also appreciate our tradition of flowering the cross. And it's symbolic of the creativity of the fact that we serve a God of abundant life. We serve a God of incredible artistic detail as he created things. But that Christ, that cross is also really a picture, I think, of every believer's life. Because the cross, when it's bare, when we first put it out here, even before the palms and the, and the cloth that's draped on it, it's just bare. There's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing attractive about the salt-treated cross that's wrapped in wire. And that's how we are without Christ. There is nothing in ourselves, in and of ourselves that we can present to him to make ourselves acceptable or beautiful in his sight. It's just the opposite. And then that is a picture of how Christ takes the bareness and the, the impoverished soul and spirit and just wraps it and cloaks it in his beautiful righteousness so that when we stand before the father, that's what he sees of us. Christ was disfigured for us so that we can share in his beauty. And what a what a beautiful symbol that is to realize that our sins, past, present and future have been forgiven because of the work of Christ. And so we stand and have fellowship with the father looking absolutely beautiful because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the gospel. Well, today is Resurrection Day, and so I'm going to preach out of a very familiar text, and I appreciate Kevin reading a lot of the verses in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and some of those verses I won't touch on because I don't have time to go through the entire chapter, so I'm just going to focus in on a few different verses in 1 Corinthians 15. But I've entitled this sermon, from a Christian perspective, why do we do the things we do? I mean, Christians do some crazy things, some funny things, some 
countercultural things. We, we, we think different about things. We act different. Uh, we, we parent our kids a little differently. Our marriage is a little different. Our work ethic is a little different. Our leisure time is different. So why do we do the things we do? What's behind it? What drives us? A lot of times a Christian life consists of many, many sacrifices. Why, why would we make these kind of sacrifices? Why would people get up early in the morning to, to drive here and cook breakfast for the saints to make sure they're lively and not falling asleep during the resurrection sermon? And put regular coffee in the decaf pot just to make sure nobody falls asleep. No, that was not an April Fool's joke that they did. But why do we do the things we do? And that's what Paul is going to argue in this chapter. But the very end of the chapter, and we'll get into the argument that he presents. The very end of the chapter is a powerful verse in verse 58. So there's 58 verses in this chapter. And he ends with this powerful conglomeration of words. And he's writing to the saints at Corinth. And there's some trifling people in Corinth, if you read the books. You know, a lot of times we talk about, we need to get back to the early church. We need to be like the early church. Which one are you talking about? You're talking about the, the gluttons? You're talking about the Corinthian church that they, used, they got drunk during communion? You're talking about the ones that were all sleeping around with each other? Which early church do you want to be like? We have problems. They had problems. But he's writing to this trifling group of people and he's encouraging them in the gospel. And he says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because, you know, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a powerful, powerful scripture. And what, what he's saying to, to believers is that absolutely everything you do for God counts. It, it, it's a treasure. Everything you do for God will be rewarded. And he makes that argument. So your efforts, your labors... Every tear, every drop that you ever cried for the kingdom of God counts. All the drops of sweat, every sacrifice, every time you cried tears of joy, all of these things, all of the emotions that you felt for the kingdom of God count in eternity. Not a single thing that we do as believers, is in vain, meaning empty, meaningless, purposeless. Every step, every movement in the kingdom of God counts. Now, many of you have served and labored for God here this morning for decades. You just have been serving him for decades. And some of you are just getting started. And that's all good. Because no matter where we are on the spectrum, the Apostle Paul wants us to know that your labors, your service, your work is not in vain. It all counts. So in essence, he's telling this group of trifling people that are struggling with their Christian life. And they're doing a lot of things wrong. And he's saying, guys, girls, don't throttle down in this. You, you came into the gospel with both feet. Keep 
your foot on the accelerator. Don't throttle down. Don't pull back. Don't hold back. Everything that you're doing matters. So keep up the, the momentum. Now, Paul talks about his life as if it was a race. He sees a finish line. We all have a finish line. So keep it going. I remember um, as a kid. Wanting to learn how to ride a horse. I think every kid goes through that stage. You don't just want to learn to ride it. You want to own one. How many have you asked your parents for a horse at one time or another? Not just kids, but even adults. Did you? That's it? Well, I thought it would be more than that. What's wrong with this group of people? (laughs) Anyway, I grew up watching Westerns. That was my food and drink. I loved Westerns. And um, I wanted to learn to ride a horse, but I didn't just want to learn to ride a horse. I wanted to be the cowboy that just is taken off across the plains. And so I, you know, I learned to ride a horse and I asked, how do you just go really fast? That's the main thing I want to know. How do you go really fast? And I was instructed, you know, you got to grip with your legs. You got to hold on tight with your legs. Um, but with the reins, of course, you hold on tight to those, but you give the horse rein. You, you have to let it. If you really want to fly, you got to let that horse know you can book it. So you can't be nervous and pulling a little bit to the right or pulling a bit, little bit to the left. If you want to go high speed, you got to give him his free reign so he can just go out and be what he was created to be. And the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is saying here to believers, you know, you got to give the Christian life. You got to give the spirit of God in your heart free reign to, to let him take you where he wants to take you. Now is not the time in the church. We can't afford to be individuals. And we can't afford as a church to constantly be tugging and pulling back because we're scared of where the Christian life, the spirit of God might take us. In all of these areas of our lives, all of the decisions that we make, we want to be full throttle. We want to give ourselves fully to what? The work of the Lord. Does the gospel have free reign in your life? In your family, in your marriage, in your work, in your heart this morning. If so, that's good. Because it all counts. Here's Paul's argument as far as why it counts. Let's look at the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So why does the Apostle Paul not hold back in his Christian life? One of the reasons is that he sees the resurrection as a fulfillment of Scripture. It's it's real to him because he, he anticipated it 
as a Jew, or he anticipated the Messiah to come as a Jew, though he was off in his thinking. But now, with the eyes of light, he can go back and read the scriptures and he can see where God promised to send a Messiah into the world that would have victory over all things and establish the kingdom. He sees this promise in scripture. And he holds scripture as so reliable that it's only a matter of time before this promise will be fulfilled by God because God keeps his word. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of God spoken in this promise. So he's saying, I don't hold back because I see that Jesus fits right in line with the promise of God. Jesus said, not only the scripture said beforehand, but Jesus himself said many times in all the gospels, I, the son of man, will suffer many things and die. But on the third day, I will rise again. So Jesus reiterates that promise, basically confirming that he is God in the flesh. I will keep this promise. I will rise on the third day, not the third day of the month. It's specific here. Fulfillment of prophecy is is incredibly specific. Not the third day of the month. Not the third hour, not after my third attempt, I will rise on the third day. And that's exactly what he did. Now you can go to Jerusalem today, and if they have the spot correctly, uh, the Holy Sepulchre, you can look at the tomb and see, indeed, there's no body in it. Now, I looked in that tomb. Skeptically, I don't know if they have it all figured out exactly. But wherever the tomb is, it is empty. As a matter of fact, a few years ago during this season, um, there a lot of times there are Christian films around Easter, which is a good thing. And there are many, uh, there's a few good ones out there this year. But there was a, even Hollywood came out with a film. It was well done about trying to find the body of Christ. It was called Risen. And even Hollywood couldn't find the body of Christ. They're, they're one of their greatest stars. I think it was Ralph, Ralph Fiennes. He played a uh, agnostic Roman centurion, a big deal commander, and he was given the task uh, of uh, finding this body so they could calm all these rumors about some guy rising from the dead. That's not good stuff for this world. If there's somebody in this world that can overcome death, that means something. So all the powers that be were worried about this, and he went on a search. Indeed. You know he's resurrected if even Hollywood can't find him in the tomb. The scripture says the tomb was sealed when Jesus was put in it. And there were Roman soldiers around it. And we know that women came to the tomb uh, the next day. And what did the angels tell the women? If you have come here, so the voice, another voice from heavenly messengers, if you've come here, see Jesus, which they did. He's not here. You missed him. He's gone. He is risen. So it's a fulfillment of Scripture. Paul sees it all in here and he's banking his everyday decisions on it. Another reason he doesn't uh, hold back is because there are also witnesses that can attest to this fact. Now, if you hear something in, in this life or in this world or you read something, say, in the news or even you hear some news about somebody in this church that's pretty impossible or pretty incredible. One of the first things you want to do 
you want to ask that person or you want to ask somebody else who was there. It didn't really happen like somebody just told me it happened. Because there's something about witnesses. We bank our accuracy and truth in this world. One of the most effective ways to do it is by questioning witnesses. You get reliable people speaking about things. It just so happens the resurrection wasn't just done in some corner of the world in secret. Where people that knew about it, it was a big deal. It made the headlines, if you will. Now, news traveled even in that culture without your, their iPhones and so forth. Because verbally, just like it still does in remote cultures today, news travels fast. The Apostle Paul says that there were people that saw him die. And those same people saw him in his risen form. And I encourage you, just go ask him. And it wasn't just the Christian community. It wasn't just the, the ministry team that Jesus had, the disciples. It was a lot of random kinds of people from different places. So go ask them. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And this letter was written 16 to 18 years after the resurrection. So, yes, someone, if they were elderly, perhaps, or for whatever other reason, not all of them are still available. The idea is this. If you're not convinced simply by seeing that God has fulfilled Scripture, you don't get an opportunity to go visit the tomb. Of course, in that day, they could actually point to a place. You don't have an opportunity to do that. Ask somebody else who saw him. These people are available. There's nothing to hide here. And that's how they verified history like we do today, much of it. That's how they verified historical facts in that day. A, Brit a British scholar, Richard Balcom, says, Ancient historians gave more credence to the oral histories of still living eyewitnesses. They put those sources as more valuable than written documents. Why? Because if the eyewitnesses were still around and they were still alive, you could go and you could cross-examine them. You could corroborate what they said. Therefore, living eyewitnesses were always the source of choice for history. This was a well-known thing that took place. Now, not everybody believed it. But you could go and cross-examine the witnesses. You could try to catch them in a lie if you wanted. See, that's powerful stuff. Paul bases his Christian life on history. It's based on fact, not just some fuzzy, warm feeling from the Spirit. And he is using reason. He is using logic. He is using the very resources, things that we can touch and point to, people that we can actually speak to, to convince, to, to proclaim and testify the power of the resurrection. And Paul even used this common knowledge to his defense in Acts 26. You know that he was arrested for proclaiming the gospel. And a lot of the scribes and the Pharisees did not appreciate that. So he was constantly being hassled. He was constantly be, being arrested. And he found himself before Festus. Not the Festus on Gunsmoke. Festus in the Bible and King Agrippa. And he is on the defense. And so he says this, watch how he uses the resurrection as common knowledge. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. So there were a variety of type of people at this trial or at this meeting saying nothing but what the prophet Moses said would come to pass. There's the scriptural fulfillment. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said this. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words on what grounds. Where can he make this connection here? For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He, he is just using the facts that he has to work with. And he's telling these powerful people, you can't tell me that you don't know. Don't be naive. You can't tell me that there's not something to this resurrection, something to the risen Lord. You've heard the rumors. You've heard the accounts. This isn't something that happened in secret. And we face and carry the same burden of facts that we have to deal with today. The resurrection is history. The Apostle Paul bases his faith on facts. That happened in his time, in his day, with his people. So he's saying, yeah, I believe it. I, I, I can't come up with a good reason not to believe it. I like what N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, said about this. He said, um, if there was only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, people would have believed the body was stolen. If it had only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in it, then everybody would have believed they were hallucinating. Only if all these were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanently changed lives of the witnesses, could Christianity have ever begun. You understand, they, they're working with the same thing we're working with today. There were people in that, in those, uh, in that culture, in that generation... That they didn't witness it either. We haven't witnessed it either. So how do you convince somebody? You use the facts. The facts that there were eyewitnesses. The historical writings that we have today. Now it's in all the Gospels and Scripture. But Jesus' life. These things were also written about in Roman and Greek historical documents. Not exactly like we find it here. But the world knew Christ at that time. And you use the same ingredients, the same resources. And we have to wrestle with the same things. The resurrection is a fact. And as Kevin read earlier this, this morning, the Apostle Paul admits this is how serious he is about his faith being founded on the reality of the resurrection. He admits, you know what, if it didn't happen, it is in vain. Every sacrifice I've ever made, every choice I've ever made, every good feeling I ever had, every hope, it was all false. It was a hallucination. Three times he says that in this passage. That's how much hinges on the resurrection. The witnesses, the fulfilled promises. And look at our lives. Look at our lives. They're changed. 
Now, not everybody has a dramatic testimony. I know that I had one of those dramatic testimonies where you could see a big difference in me after I came to Christ. And the longer I abided in Christ, the bigger the difference is. That's a form of witness and testimony to the power and the reality of the resurrected Lord. Jesus said several times, I will be raised on the third day. And he had people that believed in that. We know we, he had very faithful followers. Now, out of all those people that believed in him and had given their lives to follow on him and listen to what he said in, in a lot of ways. I will rise again on the third day. How many people were around the tomb on the third day to celebrate the fulfillment of his promise? How many? Zero. Well, the angels were there. How many of his own followers were there for the sole purpose of celebrating the fulfillment of his promise? See, even in the of his own ranks, this was hard to believe. They were starting from scratch in a sense. So how did they wind up believing? Those that were able, they visited the tomb. The women came to embalm him, not to celebrate the resurrection. They were excited when they found out. He was not there. And then they told and shared with the other disciples. They they were starting with the same thing. So what convinced them? Well, the empty tomb. Then looking at the scripture at how he would do this. And then, of course, collaborating with the other witnesses that saw the risen Lord. And then the testimony of the changed lives. We have the same things to work with today. And we have to struggle. So we have the same tools as believers to witness. But... As unbelievers, we have to face the same facts in our day of something that really happened. We've got to wrestle with it. The burden is on us. What are we going to do with the fact that Christ came into the world and all of this testimony that he rose from the dead? Yes, 2,000 years has passed. But we're faced with the same thing. Along with the Easter season, Um, Not only does Hollywood try to put out some good Christian-based films, but almost every year, some documentary comes out about, did Jesus really exist? Did he really rise from the dead? And, you know, it's very scientific, and it's it's designed that way, of course. And and usually the assumption is, we just can't know or know. There's too many holes in this. It's interesting how, how facts are denied and and evidence is looked at from a different perspective where you come up with the wrong things and we and I have to um, tolerate that kind of bad reporting because it, the, the same facts are there. And the witnessed and the lives are there. Jesus really existed. And your faith is not based on your faith. The truth of it is not based on your personal experience. The Apostle Paul had quite a personal experience with the Lord, but he's not claiming that's how he knows that Christ resurrected. He said, go look at the tomb and go talk to the witnesses. It's fact. So when you embrace the resurrection like that, that's what enables us to be fueled and intentional and inspired every day to not hold back for Christ. 
Because it means he really did die. He really did rise from the dead, which means we really will as well, because he was the first fruits and that everything we do matters. Everything we do counts. And when you're firm on that, like the Apostle Paul, there's no doubts. Have you ever just wondered? Well, we all grow weary. We all get tired. But have you ever wondered? Yeah. What if it didn't happen? I mean, there's a lot of people out there that don't believe in this. There's a lot of smart people out there that don't believe in this. And, and if we let little doubts come in, if we're not sure at any given time, then we're going to pull back on the reins. We're not going to have the reason to go so hard, to run so fast, to labor so much, to care so much. It undermines the Christian experience and all the service that we would have. So it's a fact fulfilled the resurrection. Secondly, it's, it's a, a fact that fulfills. And what do I mean by that? Verse 3 says, the apostle, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What did he receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So what he's saying, and, and later on he says, If Christ didn't die for sins, we're still in him. But because he did... What does that mean? It means that he died for our sins. It means Christ paid the debt that we owed God. Have you ever owed somebody money or some other kind of debt, perhaps an offense or something in a relationship? It's, it's a, not a good feeling to be under that. Perhaps some of you owe on your mortgage. And even from the day you sign the dotted line, you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait to get this paid off. Life is going to be so good when I just get out from under this car payment or this house, house payment. And you kind of dream about it. And every once in a while you look at your amortization, see how much farther Jesus paid the price for your sins. He paid it in full. His offering to the Father was more than enough to pay for every sin, every evil. That's how satisfied the Father is. And because He has paid it, the presence of God can fill us up. We can fellowship with the very presence of God, our Heavenly Father, our Creator. Because out with the sin and in with the Holy Spirit. Because the debt was paid in full. Now, hopefully nobody in here has done time. But if you have done time, you have a debt to pay society. But when that debt is paid off, you've done your five months or your five years. All the paperwork is done and, and you're giving whatever belongings that you have acquired while you were paying that debt in prison. You're given these and they open the prison doors. And for the first time in five years, you are out in free society. You are a free person. And if you're walking, if you're close to your house and you're walking home with your stuff and the cops know you as a bad person, but your debt is paid and they see you and they radio into headquarters and they say, hey, there's this guy, Joe, he's bad news. Nope, he paid. The debt is paid. He is a free man. Paul is filled with this fact of being free from the debt of sin. And he is he realizes he is filled with. His life is filled with the presence of God. That changes things. To see your life every day 
as not filled with sin, but filled with the presence of God. It changed and it caused him to do crazy things, as we will see in a minute. And Paul is saying, because Christ walked, you walk. You walk a free man because Christ walked out of that tomb. When that tomb was rolled and scratched the dirt to get out of the way, and then Jesus walked across that same dirt, a living being. And because he walked out of that opening, we walk out of the doorway to freedom from our sin. And because of the righteousness of Christ, we are beautiful in the sight of God. We are alive in Christ. We are so alive in Christ that some people use the same scriptural argument to say, I'm so beautiful to the Father. I am so released. My debt has been paid past, present and future. Then it doesn't really even matter how I live. Because, well, Christ's blood is that powerful. But scripture has something to say about that in Galatians. For you were called to freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Walk out of the prison doors. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Just like the Exodus, when God called his people and he set them free from bondage. For what? To go out so we can do anything we want? I'm bringing you to the mountain for you to worship me. What we are set free from, the shackles come off. Why? We are now free to serve our creator. We're now free to serve our redeemer. To serve the resurrected Lord. That's what he wants us to do with every little molecule that makes us who we are. Is to serve and labor for the glory of God because Christ is real. It's not on our merits, it's on the merits of Christ. There's one more thing I want to talk about this morning. It's something that's real, I think, to every believer, and there are things we have to deal with. You know, some of us were, were quite the little hellions before we came to Christ. And we carry that shame. I don't know about you, but there are times in my Christian life where out of the blue I remember something and I just hang my head in shame and I just can't even believe that about myself. It's embarrassing. What do you do with the evil record that you have? What do you do with with the memories? What do you do when you realized how destructive your life was? How badly it hurt people. And for many of the sins we committed, we're still living in the consequences. We still have to look at some people face to face and eye to eye because of wicked things we have done. How do Christians move on with that? How can we give ourselves fully with that kind of baggage? I think the apostle answers that for himself. In this third point, facts that fill full in verses nine through ten and then 30 and 32 that we will look at. You know, Paul had baggage he had to deal with. Verse nine, he's still feeling the weight of his past sins. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why would he say that? You can almost see him hanging his head in shame. Because I persecuted the church of God. 
I mean, he's on fire for God and he is 100% church now. But there was a time when he was the guy that persecuted the church. There was a time when he was the, the fiend that went after those that placed their faith in Christ. He destroyed lives. He robbed people of their freedom. He did everything within his power, the exact antithesis of what he is preaching now. And he's carrying that. It's not something that he escapes in his lifetime. He was there in Acts when this, this vibrant believer that was sold out to God, Stephen, would do anything for the service of the Lord. He was there when they snuffed him out with stones. He was a part of the hunting party. I know hunting is big in this culture. But yeah, they hunted people in that day. Paul, in particular, had a scent for believers in Christ. He was a part of those mobs and he was commissioned even. I mean, he was so self-justified in everything he did. And they would grab people when they found them. They'd take them out of their homes, take them out of the, the sanctuaries, their places of worship, wherever they were when they found them. If you had that reputation, they would catch you and they would take you. And in some times they would imprison you. And in some cases they would put you to death. You know what that means? That means that there's a very good chance that the Apostle Paul was bringing the gospel of hope and freedom to people or families that perhaps he was responsible for the death of their relative. Perhaps he was responsible for the death of a spouse. Perhaps there were kids now that were more grown up that don't have parents. Because of that man, the Apostle Paul, he's feeling it. He feels it in his service to Christ. You ever feel that in your service to Christ? The weight and the death or, or, or the burden of those decisions you made that wrecked people in this world. What do you do with that? What did the Apostle Paul do with that? How do you ever move on and take off? Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, how do you, so how do you apply that, the grace of God in your life? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So here's what Paul lives with. Yeah, he lives with the reality of his sin and the consequences. He lives with perhaps not knowing, well, if I go to this town or if I go to this village, will I see someone? Will someone confront me about my former life? He lives with that. He's humble. He's poor of spirit. He realizes that he's spiritually bankrupt. But what else does he realize? Every day, the burden of his sin also brings him alive and awakens him to the grace of God. The grace of God is applied to that sin every day in his life. And what effect does it have? It drives him to do what? To work harder. It doesn't keep him, keep him condemned. So where he's groveling in the dirt every day about his sin, he carries that. It's there. It's real. 
But the effect is not self-pity. The effect is not excuses. The effect is, God, you saved me. You pardoned me. You made me beautiful. I live by grace. You have employed me. I can't believe it. I don't deserve it. But because you did, I'm going all out. I'm giving you free reign in my life. And it showed. Now, the other apostles did incredible things. But it showed in the apostles' life. Isn't it just like God to so change a life that the person that was the most wicked is now the greatest testimony? Now, the other apostles failed him. Yeah, when he was in the garden and the guards came, they, they were gone. He gone. Where's the rest of them? They're gone. And then Peter, yeah, he denied him three times. He, they all have to live with that. But Paul, he lived with something even greater. But he's living in grace and everything he does. It's God's grace in me. And it just makes him more and more grateful. Do you ever wake up in the morning and think, man, I get to go to church. I can't believe it. God's letting me be a part of these people. God lets me be a part of the promise of eternal life. God promised me this this other person in my life to help me with every decision I got to make. I don't deserve that. The warmth and the goodness, just being told the truth by God. I don't deserve that. These are treasures. And Paul's alive to this every day and it fuels him on to what? To serve, to go all out. It's not in vain. Everything that he faced, and Paul faced more than we have by far. Everything that he faced was worth it. You mean getting stoned and left for dead? Yep. Every stone that passed through the air, whether it hit him or not, was not in vain. All those times he was shipwrecked and had to gasp for air, hoping he wasn't going to drown. That time he got bit by the poison snake. All of that counted for something because he's serving God in it. All the times he went hungry. All the times he ate too much, if there ever was. This kind of living will cause you to do crazy things. It will, it will transform you at times to do very radical things for Christ. When you realize... That really, there's nothing between you and the finish line. All you have is grace. The sins have been paid for. You got the power of God and grace. What is there to hold you back? I like what the Apostle Paul said. Um, in a, well, where is it? He said it in Ephesians. Somebody paid an April Fool and took that scripture out of. No, wait a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't say it in Ephesians. He said it about Ephesus. My mistake. He said it in Corinthians. So in, in this very chapter, verses 30 through 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? So, for Paul, when he is prompted by the Spirit to go and bring the gospel to, to different places, just in his 
humble obedience to the Lord. Sometimes to get from here to here, you got to face really hard things. We talked about shipwrecks. But if you're not afraid of... Look at all... Every man's greatest fears. Paul faced pretty much all of them. Like the fear of dying, of being suffocated, the fear of drowning, the fear of being eaten alive by wild beasts. In order to get to where God was calling him, he had to face these kind of things. He fought even wild beasts as if the other things weren't enough. And we don't know exactly. The scholars are like, we're not exactly sure. I mean, we have an idea what they are. But he fought off something. My theory is that they were orcs. They were either orcs or Urukai. Some kind of evil beasts trying to prevent him from doing... I'm teasing, but try to prevent him from doing... I die every day. So there's a good question. Man, Paul... Why, why put yourself out there like that? Why go through that? Why face death? Why put yourself in these precarious positions? You know what his answer is? Because Christ is risen from the dead. And because he has risen, I will rise. I have that promise. So there is absolutely... You, you can't even give me a good reason why to throttle back the Christian life. I'm going to claim every promise. I'm going to go all out. I don't even deserve to be here. But because I am, by God's grace, I'm going to go all out for the glory of God. You see, he's filled up to the full with the grace of God. And that's how he sees life. Even the biggest mess ups often lead to the biggest resurrected lives. Even the coldest hearts, and Paul was mean and cold, and look at his pastoral epistles. They're filled with warmth and love and closeness. Those that wanted nothing to do with truth or, or education are often the people God uses to elucidate and proclaim and study His truths. It's the resurrection power of God that's in this place this morning through the transformed lives. So that's how Paul closes this great chapter. With this inspiring charge. Again, in verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor. For the Lord is not in Vain. He is risen. May God bless the preaching of his word.